Well, I want to welcome you here this morning. I'm glad you'd all come and join me. I'm glad we get to celebrate this time together. We're in the season of Christmas, uh, but it is also a season that is described by the Christian church, church as the season of Advent. And Advent really means arrival. And we celebrate the arrival of Jesus in this time. And in that uh, Latin word Advent and that sense of arrival, uh, all through the scriptures there is an associated uh, kind of a word that goes with it, and it's called waiting. That all through the scriptures, beginning with the patriarchs, you watch people wait. Wait for what God has promised. You watch the patriarchs, you watch the children of Israel in uh, the wilderness wait for God. You watched uh, later on in the prophets, people wait for God. And that's really what Advent is about. We are waiting for the Messiah. So I just have to say this right off the bat. I personally find waiting difficult. I don't know if any of you do, but I find waiting hard. Uh, I came from Southern California, and in Southern California, you know, nobody likes to wait in traffic, and there couldn't be any place to enjoy waiting less than Southern California. And so the idea of waiting in long lines, the, way, the idea of waiting for much of anything just tends to push me the wrong way. I'm a bit impatient, okay? I kind of think that of waiting as like uh, waiting for toast to come up, okay? So if you can't see, we have a toaster up here. I brought it from home. My family is uh, fasting today. Um, but anyway, it's like waiting for this thing to pop, okay? And so this is a time of waiting for the arrival of something that we look at as very special. So I want us to pray, and I'm going to read to you from the book of Micah, chapter 5. And if you have a Bible and want to turn there, that would be a great thing. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then I'll read from this text, Okay. Father, I'm grateful for this chance to be with this group of people this morning. I pray for uh, that which is from you. We so long to hear your voice, to hear the word that is for us from you this morning. And so I pray for that. I pray for my own life that way, that I would have ears to hear the thing that is from you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would now just watch over this time, that you would Make your presence known to us as we gather in your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Listen with me to Micah chapter 5, 1 to 4. It says this, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. The prophet Micah 
spoke primarily to the people of God around 740 B.C. And it was during the reigns of three kings in the land of Judah. One was Jotham, Ahaz, his son, and then finally Hezekiah. And that was kind of the span of time that Micah was prophesying. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, which there's a fairly large book in the Bible called Isaiah. If you've not found it, you can go discover it later. And also Hosea was another prophet that Micah was a contemporary of. And in the time that Micah prophesied to this, uh, the people of Israel, both somewhat to the northern and southern kingdom, Judah in particular was struggling with some different things. And one of the things that Micah exposes is the selfishness and the injustice of those in leadership. But also the false prophets that were speaking in that time, really what was convenient rather than what was true. And sometimes we're really good at listening for the thing that's convenient to us rather than the thing that is true for us. God always wants to speak the truth to us. And so when we're hearing those messages that may be more convenient than true, it may be a good place to pause and to ask the Lord, what is the true message you have for me? But Micah spoke to this people that were really, really pretty selfish, pretty much into themselves. And so he speaks a word, a prophetic word of judgment against these people, against God's people. But in the midst of that uh, prophecy of judgment, there is also a prophetic word of hope. And that's where we find in Micah 5, the word of the Lord. That he speaks a word of hope into this place. God's people were in a season of waiting. And they were going through some difficult things. And in the midst of that, Micah speaks about the judgment that is to come but he also speaks that there is something more, and that is that the Messiah is going to come. And that this waiting that they were doing right now was waiting for the Messiah, waiting for him to come. But the waiting was not necessarily going to be easy. They were waiting for this wonderful king who was going to basically bring his kingdom into being. The waiting was not only a long waiting because it's basically 700 years until the fulfillment of it. That's a long wait. But in that waiting, these people didn't just sit by and kind of watch. They also went through a great deal during that time. It was a time of enslavement for them. It was a time of uh, really finding themselves under the, uh, the thumb of the Assyrians. It was long and painful. And you have to understand that that which sustained them in the midst of the difficulty was this hope. This hope in the Messiah. The hope in the one that was going to bring salvation. We live in a world that in so many ways has lost hope. For many of us, we stepped into this room today with less hope than maybe yesterday. And yet we're in a place where God wants to speak his word to us that there is hope. They hoped in anticipation 
of God's promised Messiah and all that he would bring of his salvation, of goodness, and of love. As we approach this Christmas, I think we're prone oftentimes in these kinds of seasons to move into default mechanisms to kind of deal with the time. Uh, you may have family traditions that you grew up with. You may have families that have disintegrated, and now all those traditions, you just don't even want to go there. Whatever the case, oftentimes we move into the default mode, whatever is simplest for us. For some of us, Christmas may have uh, memories that are really good, and for some of us, the memories aren't so good. And if you have any kind of loss that has occurred during this season, it can change the color of it. And in that sense of the default modes that we go into to deal with the time, I find that all the different things that come to my mind I may not come to yours, but I think you can come up with your own list. I just think of Christmas as a long line somewhere waiting for me to stand in. I think of Christmas oftentimes in a very positive way with uh, decorating a Christmas tree, or at least looking at a tree that's decorated afterwards. <laughs> think of all the lights that I see. I love that. I love thinking about uh, a Christmas meal. I love thinking about the people that might come to a Christmas meal. Those are kind of special things. I love thinking about family. But I think also I realize that in those default modes, oftentimes I miss the cry, the sound of a baby's voice barely audible in the distance. And as that voice cries somewhere deep inside me, there's something that's saying I'm missing out. I'm missing something. The barrage of stimuli has overwhelmed our senses. We're distracted from the tiny voice of a child born in a stable born at Christmas. So where is the holy anticipation for what is truly life-giving? I periodically waited in airports, waited in an airport. It's delightful how expensive it is to eat in airports, just to imagine for a moment. But I've waited in airports, and I remember when I was a little boy waiting for my parents to return from a trip, and really... Uh, I waited with a, a bit of a kind of a mercenary sense because it was always about the gift they were going to bring me when they returned. It had little to do with them. In fact, I'm not even sure I really cared whether they came back as long as they sent the gift. <laughs> and how different that was, what a contrast it was when my daughter went off to college and spent a year in Europe, in Florence, and my wife and I did not, had not seen her for three months and decided we had to go see her. And we spent, uh, took some time in January. Uh, the middle of winter in Europe is quite beautiful and freezing. <laughs> and so we went and we were in Scotland and she flew into Scotland. And I remember being at that airport, my wife going into the terminal and there came Katie. And when she saw her mother, she just dropped everything and ran 
And Francie ran and they greeted one another, you know. And it was one of those things that if you could film it, you would have done it in slow motion. You know, and they would have been running just kind of in that slow motion thing and they would have embraced, you know. And uh, Katie was crying. I mean, it was just this great, joyful moment. And you know what? I could have cared less about the present she was bringing me. I could have cared less about that because I got to see her. I got to be with her. I got to hang out with my daughter after three months of having not seen her. We're far more interested at times about what the present is than maybe the presence of the one who comes. You see, holy anticipation really calls for waiting appropriately. We're getting ready. Always getting ready. Because Advent has not only to do with this season, but it has to do also with the coming of Christ again. And so we long for that, and so we're getting ready. So how might we wait appropriately in this season? How might we kind of pay attention to what's going on around us and nurture holy anticipation for the arrival of Jesus? I want to suggest five practices to attend to as you wait. The first practice is this, and these come out of this text. The text says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. I want you to practice embracing humility. Practice embracing humility. In that text, it has a little phrase there, that verse. It says, he will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. And that phrase really refers to an action that's symbolic of humiliation. You see, the Assyrians had come in and they began to make their way through the northern kingdom and now they were going into the southern kingdom. They had already taken over Samaria. Hezekiah was sitting and he was watching them come in to his kingdom, that southern kingdom. And as he watched it happen, he watched them go through and systematically take over the towns that were Judah. And he found himself unable to keep them out with all the might of his, his army. He couldn't keep them out of Judah. And as a ruler, he was humiliated. But in his humiliation, what he does is he humbles himself before the Lord. And so as he humbles before the, himself before the Lord, what you see is that now God intervenes. And though they came into Judah, they got to the doorstep of Jerusalem and could go no further because God stopped them. You see, all that happens in this passage that Micah's telling the people about, all that's going on, all that will subsequently come out of this begins in the place of humiliation, begins in the place of humility. God's work is set in motion through humility. It says, I embrace the places of humiliation and then the accompanying attitude of humility that God 
God's work finds the soil really to take root in. When I'm proud of the resources I've amassed, the troops that I have, then I'm really unable to receive the mercy that God so longs to extend to me. To receive the Messiah this Advent, to receive Jesus at this season, we need to practice humility so we can receive his life. Humility creates open space in which Christ can enter. When I'm full of my pride and my ego, when I'm full of myself, there's little room for Christ to make his home. The embrace of humility also calls me away from my selfishness into, into places of sacrifice. When I position myself and my rights beneath others, I'm practicing humility. When their needs and desires take precedence over my needs and desires, I'm practicing humility. My three-year-old granddaughter, uh, Amelie, uh, was with her mom, and her mom said, wouldn't it be fun to write a letter to Santa Claus and tell him what you want for Christmas? Now, I don't know what your views on Santa Claus are, and I really don't care. Um, you can take them home with you and enjoy them wherever you are. But they wrote this letter, and uh, her mom kept asking Amelie, who's three years old, can't write herself, kept asking, what do you want me to write? And she said, I want you to write and ask Santa to bring a scooter for my sister G Gigi, like mine. And so mom came back again and said, yes, what do you want from Santa? I want to make sure that Santa brings a scooter for Gigi, like mine. Okay, we got that. What do you want from it? And she just kept going at this, hammering this thing, until finally Aaron wrote that down. Amelie wants a scooter for her sister. You see, somehow a three-year-old captured this idea of what it means to look out for the interests of someone else, to set their interests above your own, to find ways to make yourself low that another might be exalted. In my home, practicing humility might be getting down the myriad of boxes at Christmas that my wife has of decorations. That could be one way. Or it might be going to the grocery store for one more bag of sugar for the baking. Just one more. It could be. I find that in my life that it tends to be something about me first that overshadows a lot of this season. And I think it's something that I see in the culture around me. We stand in lines and we can't imagine why the person in front of us can't be behind us. I find that many of my expectations about Christmas, Christmas really have little to do with humility, much more to do with my own selfishness, much more to do with my own ego and pride, much more to do with a sense of deserving something. 
And what I realize is that these things are the very antithesis of the one who came as Savior of the world. Jesus willingly emptied himself. He emptied himself and takes the lowest role in the culture, that of a slave. He came to give himself a ransom for many. Jesus came not clinging to his rights as God's son, but letting go of all his rights to make us right with God. When we expect better treatment or to get our way no matter what, our lenses through which we see Jesus are obscured by our own ego. It is through the lenses of humility that Jesus, who comes to us humbly, is best seen. You want to wait appropriately, I encourage you to practice humility this season. The second thing is practice celebrating the small things. Practice celebrating the small things. The text says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Bethlehem was a town in Judah that didn't have a lot of notoriety. It stood really pretty much in the shadow of Jerusalem. In fact, it might have been considered a bit obscure. And yet it was the city in which uh, when Samuel was sent by God in the book of 1 Samuel to go anoint a king, it was the city he was told to go to. And that he was to look for a particular family that lived in that city, the family of Jesse. And Jesse had several sons. And so when Samuel came and said, bring out your sons, because among them somewhere there's a king that God wants me to anoint. And he kept bringing out these sons. And every time he'd bring a son out, God would say to Samuel, that's not the one. And after he'd gone through all the ones that were there, finally Samuel asked the question, is that all? And Jesse makes this interesting comment. He said, well, there is one more. But he's out with the sheep. Somehow, in that family occasion, they didn't even think to ask and invite him into the the moment. And the one that's out tending the sheep is a boy named David. A young boy. And it's that one that God says, finally, that's the one. The marginalized child born in an obscure town is chosen by God. So that's the city of Bethlehem. Not a real well-known place, but some pretty significant things have happened there. And you see, in their anticipation of the Messiah, I think the Jewish people were looking more for a conquering king who would vanquish their enemies, who would make them prominent in the world. The Jews were looking for fanfare. They were looking for flamboyance. And as a result, they might have missed paying attention to the small place that Jesus was identifying with in Bethlehem. It's one of the ways God chooses to act in the world in which he comes. He chooses the foolish and the weak, the small and the overlooked. 
He chooses the marginalized and the out of the way in bringing his message to humanity. He chooses ways we least expect to make his entrance into the human drama. I think too often we look for and gravitate towards the big event, the larger-than-life personality, the burning bush experience, and yet we miss all the small and ordinary ways that Jesus reveals himself to us. I think it's interesting that the space Jesus chooses to initially enter and inhabit is, is an obscure town, an even more obscure feeding trough, an overlooked room in an out-of-the-way place. I can find myself at Christmas seduced so often by the bigger and better mentality. We did it this big last year, let's do it bigger next year. You know, it's just that sense of all-consuming, how do I do more? I remember that, uh, I think it was the second year we were here in Modesto. My uh, wife had been at a friend's house and she had seen that they had a, a Christmas tree, uh, kind of a fake Christmas tree, all decorated beautifully in their living room. And uh, she came home and she said, I would like one like that in our living room. And I asked, I said, really? And she said, yes. And I asked, she said, yes, you can get them at Costco. I said, really? She said, yes. I said, well, God be with you <laughs> as you go. And she said, no, I want you to be with me as well. <laughs> really? So we went to Costco and we got one of these trees. And, you know, it was incredible. We brought it into the house and we undid the box. And the first thing we saw was the tree had lights on it. Whoa, that was already a plus. We didn't have to string lights on the tree. God bless you, Costco. And so there we are with our tree. We've gotten the base out, and we take the first part of the tree out, the third, the bottom third, and we plug it into that base that's there. And we bring down the branches, and all of a sudden, there's something a bit disconcerting about the moment. It seems that the branches are enormous. And we set up the second tier on this thing, and really what we realize is that when the tree is fully up, there is no room. There is no room at all. We cannot make our way walking around the tree, let alone sit there. And if you were sitting there, anyone else in the room would be obscured by the tree. <laughs> the whole point of the thing was, let's gather around the Christmas tree. Well, you're not going to gather around this one. <laughs> the thing that had looked so dainty on the Costco floor was enormous. We quickly boxed it back up and took it home because we figured, really, that we didn't want to designate one room to a Christmas tree. <laughs> Bigger and better. Whoa. Now, contrast that with my grandchildren, who my wife receives in the mail this uh, kind of a box that has a set of drawers and stuff in it, but it's a fairly large box. And for like two weeks, my grandchildren are enamored with a box. That's all they care about. Now when boxes come, they're really excited. Not about what's in them, but the box. It's changing the whole way I'm doing Christmas next year. 
I'm going to the UPS store. Seriously. Somehow they're able to see something in the ordinary. Something in the small thing. And so often I am moving past those things, trying to find the big deal. You see, in focusing my attention and longing on the larger life experiences, I miss the small and ordinary ways Jesus is making himself known. If Jesus chooses the small venue of Bethlehem to reveal himself, then we better watch for and celebrate the small ways that he's making himself known to us now. All along the journey of life, Jesus is speaking. Jesus is listening. Jesus is remaining with us. We practice celebrating the small things when we notice God's work in ordinary things. Things like the provision of a meal. Things like children laughing. This will be the first Christmas that my family will celebrate without my mother-in-law. My wife's mom passed away this last September. So Christmas is a bit different. But I've admired my wife because for the past few years she's recognized that that time was approaching. And she's cherished the moments with her mom at our Christmas gatherings. She's fully attended to her mother and just watched her, watched her have great joy in being with her grandchildren and great-grandchildren, watched her as she's found delight in just kind of being there. But my wife has watched that and cherished those moments. She celebrated the small things. It'd be easy to be consumed with the packages under the tree. but she's been enamored with the people in the room. What a great thing to see just the small thing of relationships gifted to us by God and to celebrate that. The presence of Jesus is made known when we encounter the fruits of the Spirit manifested in the lives of others, the love that we experience when we're embraced by a child, the joy we derive from laughing with friends and family, the goodness we see in the acts of kindness that are done to us and to others, the small things. All these and more Jesus is doing in and around us to be noticed and to be enjoyed by us. The old saying that good things come in small packages reminds us to see a baby who is revealed in the small spaces and small places of our lives. Every day, God is at work in the very ordinary things of life. They are often small, but they're places revealing his beauty. They're places that reveal his love. They're places that reveal his power and his provision. They're the small things.
I want to encourage you to practice celebrating the small things. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to practice surrender to God's rule. The text says this in verse 2. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Whenever the mention of a ruler coming kind of is made, I realize that that means that whatever authority and rule is in place at the moment will be challenged. I find in my life when that whole idea of a ruler coming begins to wash over me, begins to somehow impact my life, I realize that it's a place of challenge. It gives me either the opportunity to be resistant or to surrender. When the Messiah comes, he comes to rule in all our lives. Not just a part, not just some, but all. The season of Advent really provides a great opportunity to reorient our lives. It's almost like a reset around the authority and rule of Jesus. This means living as subjects of his kingdom and responding to his will and obedience. He is described as the one whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Realize that the Messiah originates with God. The authority comes from God. And it's not a new idea that just came up. It's something that God has had in his mind for eternity. Every day we're challenged to live surrendered lives to the king, to Jesus. Where I'm prone to control and manipulate to achieve my ends, Jesus calls me to listen to his word and follow him. I'm confronted with my issues of surrender most often when I have a way, a particular way of doing things, or I have a particular outlook or a perspective that's mine. I find that Jesus is always coming in and challenging those places. I find that he's always saying something that pushes me a little bit in those places. For instance, it seems to me that Jesus often brings the opportunities to show compassion at the most inconvenient times. I'm doing something. And you want me to stop now? But this is so important to me. This is what I think is really significant to me. Jesus seems to be saying, I want to show you what is significant to me. Surrender maintains that I am not the last word or highest authority in my life. One of the dilemmas we face at Christmas is that I think we're often comfortable with the images of Jesus as a newborn baby. I have a manger scene at home. It has a small porcelain baby Jesus. It is very non-threatening to my life. 
But the images of him as a king are less comfortable. The helpless and innocent infant really makes very few demands on my life. While the king, the one who comes with power and authority, pretty much gets to do anything he deems is good for his kingdom. If we are to anticipate the one truly coming at Christmas, then we must practice surrender to his word and to his way as we wait. We need to understand, though, that the king to whom we surrender really by his choice has chosen to be identified with things like goodness, love, mercy, and grace. His unconditional love for us is always the catalyst for our surrender. The writer David Benner in a book called Surrender to Love says this, the surrender that Jesus invites from us, choosing his will and his life over our our own, can never be motivated by anything but love. Both in this age and the age to come, the presence of Jesus Christ calls for surrender to his love and grace. Our waiting will be enhanced if we wait in an attitude of surrender to all that Jesus has called us to in this season and all that he's going to bring to us and bring our way this season. Our waiting is not to be idle, but to be lived out in the practice of daily surrender to the king who has come, who is here, and who is coming again. Our faith is deepened as we set aside our control to surrender to his love. With each act of surrender, we are reminded that God's will for us is ultimately good, even while it seems temporarily difficult. So I encourage you to practice surrender to God. Fourthly, I want to encourage you to practice rejoicing in the labor pains. Listen to Micah 5, verse 3. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son... And the rest of his brothers returned to join the Israelites. When I was reading this, the thing that caught me was the word labor there. Uh, I have three children, and I watched my wife deal with labor pains uh, several times. And as I watched it, whether it was at the beginning of it or at the end of it, it always seemed that it was accompanied by some pain and discomfort. Just a little. Kind of. And forever, whenever she was out pregnant, and the larger, the greater with child she became, the more uncomfortable she seemed to become. And uh, I, I was let, I was made known, or it was made known to me that she was uncomfortable. I was always kind of let in on the secret. Guess what? I'm really uncomfortable right now. And she was forever trying to position herself so she would be comfortable. If you've ever been pregnant, I'm not, but if you've ever been pregnant... You understand this, that you're trying to figure out what is the position that I can be in that I will actually be comfortable in. And what you find, finally discover on the ninth month is, is there is none. <laughs> Whatever it is has evaded you. And so somehow there's this sense of discomfort that is associated with this whole birth process. But it's interesting that this whole little story here is about birth. 
one who is going to come from this city in Bethlehem. And the son born is identified with the Messiah. And when he's born, he's going to reintegrate God's people under God's rule. God's providing hope for Judah in the midst of painful circumstances. Much like a woman in labor anticipates the birth of a child. The Messiah was to come, but the process, much like labor, would not always be pleasant. For God's people in the time of Micah's prophecy, there were enemies invading, there were people deported in exile, there were foreign powers enslaving them, so it wasn't an easy time. The metaphor of birth I find so fitting for the spiritual life. Jesus is born into humanity through the pain of labor. The mother and father wait for what is to come. It's a process that cannot be rushed along. Nor can one choose a more convenient moment for it to be completed. It lies outside the purview of our ability to change. And with the anticipation of this blessing that God brings, there's this associated labor pain. Our souls long for the seed of his new life to fill the painful emptiness of our spiritual hunger. And so at this time, believers are really called to wait. That's what Advent invites us to do. But in the pain of waiting, we experience something more. And this is what excites me. The womb is expanding this growing new life of Christ within us, expanding to contain what God is doing. While this is about waiting for the arrival of Christ at Christmas and for his second advent, the second coming, it's also a time to wait for the arrival of our fully transformed lives, his fully formed life within us. Labor pains occur because something is growing and becoming larger than the space available until new life is finally revealed. His life dwelling in us is in the process of displacing all the other vestiges, all the other aspects of the old life, which is both decaying and dying. Where there is pain, it is an opportunity to pay attention and recognize the growth and stretching of the womb of the soul. The pain we experience reminds us that God is at work shaping and transforming us into something more. The womb of the soul is stretching to contain the larger reality of the life of Jesus in us. We anticipate not only the presence of Christ coming to us at Christmas, but as coming to us in the transforming presence within us. I remember when I was uh, traveling and I was doing music and I would have these various concerts set up across the country. Typically, we would get in the 1977 VW camper and we would make our way across the country. And my wife would join me. And uh, we took our youngest daughter out on those trips at those times as well. But this one particular occasion my wife was not able to go with me, and the reason was is that my daughter, my only daughter at that point in time, 
had uh, been exposed to the chicken pox. And since I had not yet had the chicken pox, uh, we decided it was best that we not use the van as a petri dish and just kind of grow disease together. So we didn't. And I left alone. I threw my guitar in the back and off I went. And I traveled through the deserts and through the prairies and I was just alone in this journey. And unfortunately for me, about 15 minutes into the journey, the radio stopped working. So not only was I alone in the van, I was alone with myself. And so after I had sung every song I knew, and that took another 10 minutes, I realized I was confronted with this very, very uncomfortable silence. It was thick, it was heavy, and all I wanted to do was get out from under it. But in the enforced silence, God began to stretch my ability to hear his voice. It seemed that when the distractions of my outer world were removed, I began to hear him speaking. In the waiting of silence, I began to experience the Lord in a new way. The womb of my soul was being stretched to contain a larger word from the Lord. When I try to impulsively escape the pain, I miss the opportunity to pay attention to the places Jesus is calling me to stretch with him as he grows more fully within me. As we experience the pain, we can acknowledge and we can let go of the vestiges of the old life that his new life is displacing. We can watch for the places he wants us to experience him in a larger way. We can practice rejoicing in the labor pains. Finally, I want to suggest to you during this time of Advent that in your waiting you practice entrusting your well-being to the shepherd. Practice entrusting your well-being to the shepherd. Verse 4 says this, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. The way the ruler, this son, is described is as a shepherd. And the shepherd image was often used and associated with the office of a king. Especially in the life of the people of God. Their kings were called to shepherd. The image of shepherding immediately calls to mind those ideas of protection. The ideas of provision. The fact that the shepherd looks out for the sheep. Whereas in the time of Micah, the leaders were acting more like predators than like shepherds. And into that, the prophecy was that there was coming one. The Messiah, who would shepherd his people. He was coming to provide care consistent with God's love for his people. 
The qualities of the shepherd king were strength coming from God, majesty surrounding his name, security for the sheep, and a greatness that was going to stretch to the ends of the earth. This leader would truly watch out for their interests, and in so, so doing, he'd engender trust. You see, as we wait, there's always the temptation to do things or take things into our own hands and try to take care of ourselves. Waiting just seems to push us that direction. It's not happening fast enough, so I will make it happen faster. So trusting in another to make sure of our provision or our protection or our direction is not necessarily natural to us. We can easily imagine that no one else is going to seek our best interests in the same way we would. We could imagine that no one could understand our good to the degree that we understand our good. But these would be a deception of a life turned away from God. For when we turn our attention to God, we are reminded that he longs to care for us as a shepherd cares for his own sheep. We are faced with the reality that, that this God continues to love us in all our waywardness and sin, all the places of drift in our life. We're faced with a God whose mercies are new every morning, as the writer of Lamentation says. To practice entrusting our well-being to the shepherd is something we must do, not just daily, but moment by moment. How often have we come over and manually popped the toast up because we thought it's taking too long and it's going to be overdone, only to discover it's not done at all. And so then we put the toast back down and often we find it burnt at the end because we interfered with the process. When the compulsion to take our life into our own hands comes, we must recognize that the hands of the shepherd are more spacious, stronger, and more capable of sustaining us than our own hands will ever be. If we want to appropriately wait for the arrival of Jesus as Savior, we must trust his care in the present moment to help us arrive in the place he has prepared to meet us. The shepherd will both lead us and care for us in the moment as we make our way to him and will be the one greeting us in all his fullness as we arrive. The prophet Micah in chapter 7 of his book says this, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I will wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. If we are to wait well for the arrival of Jesus our Savior, practicing the disciplines of holy anticipation really can transform our experience of Christ this Christmas. So which one of these practices do you find the most difficult? I'd like you to do this. I'd like you to go back and look at the notes for a second. And 
I want you to star one that you think maybe God is saying, I want you to do this one. I want you to work on this one, at least for a little while. Is it the practice of humility? Is it the practice of celebrating the small things? Is it the practice of surrender to the Lord? The practice of rejoicing in the labor pains or possibly the practice of entrusting your well-being to the shepherd? Which practice is God calling you to engage in now? As you continue to navigate through this season, I'm praying that the Lord will help you to practice that which will cause you to anticipate both his presence now and his coming later. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. That you would help us to pay attention to your presence in this season. That you would be all-consuming. That you'd give us great times celebrating the small ways that you come to us that you'd give us great moments of sacrificing for others in humility, that you'd give us places that we recognize again our need to surrender to you. And Lord, would you help us in the labor pains to pay attention to how you're growing and transforming us. And in it all, may we find your care to be sufficient in all things. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you walk with us into this time. That we get to look forward to something truly life-giving when we anticipate your coming in power and glory. So we pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>